Good morning. If you will please take out your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. We continue in our study of this Old Testament book about the life and the reign of King David. And this is now our 26th sermon in this book. And this morning we begin this last little section of 2 Samuel that spans through chapters 21 through 24. But first let's take a step back here and just kind of think about the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel as a whole. So First Samuel begins with the prophet Samuel and his ministry and then tells us about how Saul became the first king of Israel. We're first introduced to David in chapter 16 of that book uh, when Samuel anoints him to be the next king of Israel. And the rest of 1 Samuel from that point onwards, uh, from chapters 16 to 31, is basically David rising to prominence and Saul trying to kill him. And then at the very end of 1 Samuel, that's chapter 31, Saul is killed in battle by the Philistines. And so the book of 2 Samuel then begins with David taking the throne. He is being established as king over both Judah and Israel. And generally speaking, those early chapters go quite well for David. The nation is united. The ark is brought into Jerusalem. He ministers justice and equity in his kingdom. And he finds military success pretty much wherever he turns. But then the book takes a sharp turn in chapter 11. Right, with his sin with Bathsheba... The rest of the book from then on until basically where we're up to now, uh, chapters 12 through 20, that's all about the fallout and the consequences of that sin, right? Everything from Absalom's rebellion to David's exile to uh, Sheba's rebellion. So as you step back, right, and as you kind of look at the books as a whole, you'll notice that the entirety of First and Second Samuel up to this point, so from First Samuel chapter 1 all the way through Second Samuel chapter 20, it's all been chronologically linear. Right? There's stories from the lives of Samuel and Saul and David pretty much in the order that they happened. That going in chronological order thing, it's going to continue back in 1 Kings chapter 1. Right? David's about to die and the kingdom's about to be passed to his son Solomon. And it carries along through the books of First and Second Kings. Uh, but here... In between, right, Second Samuel chapters 21 through 24, uh, we're just going to hit the pause button on the chronological order for a bit. Instead, uh, in this little four-chapter epilogue to the book, uh, the author's going to bring together a variety of material. You've got some stories, you've got some songs, you've got some lists, uh, and at least some of those are going to come from earlier in David's reign. From time to time, uh, in our home, uh, we will do something called a, a fridge management night. Basically, the idea is that our dinner is whatever is left in the fridge. And so we'll have this kind of eclectic mix of leftovers from the past couple of days. You've got a, a slice of pepperoni pizza, and you've got a bowl of chili, and you've got half an avocado, some fried rice, some scrambled eggs. And part of what makes fridge management so fun is that there's absolutely no rhyme or reason to it. Right? Like nobody thinks that pizza and scrambled eggs like go well together. It just happens to be that both of those things are sitting in our fridge tonight. 
But it's important for us to realize that like this epilogue in 2 Samuel, uh, this is not fridge management. This is not a section where there's absolutely no rhyme or reason to it. Like it's not like the author said, well, here's some leftover stories about David. Here's an old kind of scrambled eggs kind of story here. I'm just going to throw it all in at the end. And now we know the author's work well enough by now. And we also know the Holy Spirit's work in superintending the writing of the scriptures well enough to know that he's not that careless or haphazard. Rather, this section of the book is structured very intentionally. Uh, This is not fridge management. Uh, This is a well-planned six-course meal. Uh, There's six story units in this epilogue, and they are arranged symmetrically according to what's sometimes called a chiastic structure. And so the first story, that's our story for today from the beginning of chapter 21, it's a story about God's wrath against Israel and what David does in response. The last story from chapter 24 is also about God's wrath against Israel, uh, this time because of David's census, and what David does in response. Then story number two, that's at the end of chapter 21, it's about the accomplishments of David's men in defeating the Philistines. Story number five, uh, that's the second half of chapter 23, it's also about David's men. It's a list of his most valiant soldiers. And so hopefully you see the pattern here. Story number three, it takes up the entirety of chapter 22. It's a song of David. And story number four, that's in chapters 20, chapter 23, verses 1 through 7, those are the last words of David. And so you've got God's wrath, David's men, David's words, and then David's words, David's men, God's wrath. So again, these are not haphazardly, randomly chosen stories just kind of thrown into the epilogue of a book. No, not only is there intentionality in the order of the stories, there's also intentionality in the selection of the stories themselves. These are narratives specifically selected by the author uh, to leave us, the reader, with kind of a big picture view of David's life and reign. Like I just told you the chronological story of King David from beginning to end. But now let me leave you with a few more stories in closing that are going to further illustrate what kind of man and what kind of king he was. What that means for us as we find ourselves in this very intentionally structured and selected section of the book for the next few weeks. Well, we ought to be asking, why did the author choose to include this narrative? Like of all the stories from David's life that he could have written about, why is this one specifically included here in the epilogue? That's a question that's going to be particularly pertinent for our story this morning. With that said, let's get into our passage. We'll start by just reading the text. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Look along as I read. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. 
Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, lest seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aa, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai the Meholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beasts of the field by night. David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done. David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Before we go any further, I think it might be helpful for us to just think about what we just said, right? That this is the word of the Lord. Because the passage we just read, it's kind of a strange story. It's kind of an obscure story. This is the kind of story that, like when we come up to it in our Bible reading plan, we're tempted to just read through it rather quickly and see what else we have to read for today. But we ought to pause and remember that this too is the word of the Lord. That this has been written and preserved for us as God's people. And we need to remind ourselves that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. Even this strange little narrative, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, uh, we might have hope. And so let's start by just going through the story, because in order for this passage to truly instruct us and uh, encourage us, well, we first need to know what's going on. And then after we go through the narrative, we'll look at some kind of big picture takeaways. So, what in the world is going on here? Well, let's start in verse 1. There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And so we should note that this is not just one of those one-time, hey, we had a 
really bad spring frost this year, and so uh, the harvest isn't looking too hot kind of thing. Uh, This was for three long years, year after year. Uh, This is a notable event, and it's especially notable when you remember that God had promised in giving this land that David now ruled to this covenant people, that this was a land flowing with milk and honey. Like this kind of thing isn't supposed to happen here. But then we also remember that even as God brought his people into this land, he warned them. Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28, that if they don't obey his word, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be covenant curses. And one of those covenant curses, well, here's what it says in Leviticus 26. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins and I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. In other words, I will send famine. And so maybe one year's an anomaly and two years is kind of a troubling trend. But by the time we get to year three of the famine, like the nation is desperate, the people are starving, the king must act. And so David seeks the face of the Lord, perhaps suspecting that this is the manifestation of some kind of covenant curse. And such suspicions would have been right on. This is not just a a meteorological circumstance or an agricultural phenomenon. No, this is a covenant curse on the land. Look at the end of verse 1. The Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So that's what's going on here. Apparently at some point during his reign, King Saul killed some people called the Gibeonites and that is why there has been this three-year famine. But then we have to ask, like, why is this such a big deal? We think about how King Saul was explicitly told to destroy the the Amalekites completely, which of course he didn't do. But clearly the Gibeonites seem to be different because when Saul puts the Gibeonites to death, well, the land comes under a curse. And so what makes the Gibeonites so different from the Amalekites or any other peoples in the land? Like, why does this particular killing merit a covenant curse on the land uh, when others are sanctioned and uh, even mandated? Well, as you might suspect, there's more to the story. Uh, And that backstory is found all the way back in Joshua chapter 9. As you turn there, let me try to summarize what's going on. Uh, Joshua and the Israelites, they are entering the promised land. And God explicitly tells them to destroy the people who were already there and not make covenants with them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Why? Because those people, sometimes they're called the Canaanites, sometimes they're called the Amorites, they were a particularly wicked, idolatrous people. And so the Israelites taking the promised land, uh, it wasn't only about them getting the land that was promised earlier to them through Abraham. Uh, It was also about God's judgment on those wicked nations. Uh, 
And so Joshua and his men, they make quick work of Jericho. You're probably familiar with that story with the walls of the city coming down. And then after a a setback because of Achan's sin, they also take the city of Ai. And word begins to spread around Canaan. In response, most of the Canaanites bear down, right? The kings form alliances. uh, They form federations to try to fight against Israel. But one particular group of Canaanites, called the Gibeonites, they try something a little bit different. Realizing that they're no match for the Israelites, after all, the Lord is fighting for them, they instead put on a ruse. They try to deceive the Israelites by pretending to be people from a faraway land, i.e. outside of Canaan. Because God's command to wipe out the people and to not make covenants with them, that only applied to the people of Canaan. And so it's kind of like teenagers who would take a brand new pair of jeans and start cutting holes in them for a, a distressed look. That's what the Gibeonites were going for. They, they wear their worn out sandals. They wear their worn out clothes. They get their dry and crumbly bread. And they say, hey, look, look we've come from a faraway land. We've come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. Joshua and the leaders of Israel, they basically fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. Look what it says in verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. They made a covenant with them. They swore a promise to them, but this isn't just some kids in the park making a a pinky swear in the playground. Uh, This is a covenant. Uh, This is a solemn oath that they swear before the Lord. Uh, The literal Hebrew in verse 15 says they cut a covenant with them. You see, back then, uh, solemn promises like this, uh, when they were made, uh, the two parties would take a bunch of animals and they would cut them in half. Uh, They would put the pieces opposite each other and the parties entering into the covenant would walk in between the pieces of the animals as if to say, may we too be cut up like this if we don't keep this covenant. And so Joshua and the Israelites, they know full well that this covenant is a big deal. Uh, They understood the potential consequences of breaking the covenant. And so later in the chapter, after the Israelites realize that they've been had by the Gibeonites, like they're not actually from faraway lands, they're neighbors from Canaan. But listen to what they say in verses 19 and 20. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Like this covenant is in his name. His glory is at stake. And so now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Yes, they tricked us, but we can't touch them. We can't harm them because to do so would be to break our covenant before the Lord. And if we break our covenant before the Lord, it's not really the Gibeonites that we have to worry about. Now look at verse 20, wrath will be upon us referring to the wrath of God. So turn back to 2 Samuel 21, because now we get what's going on here with Saul and David. 
You see, when Saul put the Gibeonites to death, it's not just that he killed a bunch of foreigners. Because again, in certain circumstances, right, see the Amalekites? That's exactly what God called him to do as the king of the nation. And when Saul killed the Gibeonites, he killed a people who were protected by a covenant sworn in God's name. Sure, it might have been done in zeal for the nation. But this is a classic case of zeal not according to knowledge. So what happens as a result is exactly what Joshua once warned against. Wrath will be upon us. Because King Saul broke Israel's covenant with the Gibeonites, now God's wrath is upon them. Look at the end of verse 2. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Like there used to be a covenant, but now it's been broken and there are consequences. You know, it used to be mad love. Now we got bad blood. So David calls the Gibeonites. He asks them, verse 3, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And look at how they respond. We don't want your money. We don't want financial compensation. This is not a matter of silver and gold. The Gibeonites, they've lived among the Israelites for generations. Surely they knew the law of the land. Whoever sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. But, the Gibeonites say, we don't have the right to put anybody to death. But King David, if you want to make this right, well, give us seven of Saul's sons so that we can hang them. And David agrees. I will give them. And so David takes two of Saul's sons by Rizpah, uh, named Armoni and Mephibosheth, uh, not to be confused with the other Mephibosheth, who was Jonathan's son and David's friend. That Mephibosheth, verse 7 tells us, uh, he, although he too is a direct descendant of Saul, he is spared. And David also takes the five grandsons of Saul uh, from his daughter Mirab, who was married to Adriel, by the way, when it says Adriel, the son of Barzillai the Meholathite, that's in order to distinguish him, that Barzillai, from the Barzillai that we met earlier, David's old benefactor and friend. He's always introduced as Barzillai the Gileadite. Kind of confusing, right? Lots of duplicate names here. But the bottom line is this. Two sons, five grandsons, two plus five is seven. That's seven descendants of Saul uh, these seven men are given into the hands of the Gibeonites and they are hanged to death. But the story doesn't end there and with the death of these men because you've also got a mother who's now lost two of her sons, uh, this lady Rizpah. In verse 10, we're told that from the day that her sons were hanged until God lifted the curse by sending the rain, she saw to it that the birds and the beasts stayed away from the corpses of her sons. That's a, that's a gruesome and graphic scene. But it's also a sad and tragic scene. Here is a heartbroken mother. She is sleeping outside. She is braving the elements in order to try to protect the dignity of her sons even after they're dead. David, perhaps 
moved by the devotion of this mother, he brings down the corpses. He also gathers the bones of Saul and Jonathan. Uh, You might remember that once upon a time, uh, Saul and Jonathan were buried by some loyal Israelites from Jabesh Gilead uh, so that their bodies can be kept out of the hands of the Philistines. Well, David exhumes their bones. Uh, He brings down the bodies of these seven hanged men and he gives them all a proper and honorable burial in their family tomb back in the land of Benjamin. And as a result... Well, we're told at the end of verse 14, after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And so the rain returns. The harvest is once again plentiful. The famine is over. And so the curse that Saul brought upon the land has been lifted. And that is our story. I don't know how else to put it. Right? This is just a strange story. It is a bizarre, a shocking, unique story. Uh, this is the kind of story, this is the kind of Old Testament narrative that, like, unless your church is preaching through the book of 2 Samuel, like, you're probably not going to hear too many sermons on this. Side note, I always think it's funny when uh, I preach through an obscure passage like this, and some very well-meaning person will come up to me afterwards and say, Oh, that was my favorite sermon I've ever heard on this passage. And it's like, okay, like, like top 10? Like, how many have you heard? But as we think about this strange story, right, let's remember what we said at the outset. This is not fridge management. This is not some random story just thrown in here to uh, fill up the page count, to meet the publisher's minimum or whatever it might be. This is a very intentionally chosen and placed story that should make us ask, why this story? Like of all the stories from the life of David that could have been included, like why this one? Ultimately, we'll only be able to take educated guesses on that. But here's something that we should note about this narrative. Like as unique And as strange of an Old Testament passage as it may be, well, remember what Jesus said about the Old Testament scriptures. These are they which testify of me. And here we have a narrative that is strange and obscure as it may seem, clearly points us to Christ and his gospel. So let's finish by just looking at three gospel pictures that we can clearly see in this story. But first, consider the gospel picture of atonement. Look again at the question that David asks at the beginning. This is the thing that kicks off everything else in the chapter. Verse 3, how shall I make atonement? How shall I make atonement? This is a story about atonement, of payment for sin, of making right what sin has marred. And this idea of atonement is all over the Bible. And not just in terms of relationships between people. Like here we have a story of David making atonement with the Gibeonites. But on, but on an even greater level, well, the relationship between God and man. The Bible tells us that man is estranged from God because of his sin. 
that because of his sin against God, man deserves death. And so man needs atonement. He needs to be made right before a holy God. But atonement can't come through just doing good things. Atonement can't come by just trying your best. Atonement can't come by works of penance. No, Leviticus 17, 11 tells us, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It is the blood that makes atonement for sins against the holy God and for sins between men like murder. Death is required for atonement. That's why in the Old Testament sacrificial system, so many animals were constantly being sacrificed, being put to death, right? First at the tabernacle and then at the temple because the death of the animal would cover the sins of the person. The blood of the animal would make atonement for their sins. Blood is required. A death is required. And that's why when David asks the Gibeonites how he can make atonement for the breaking of this solemn covenant through Saul's murders, they don't want his money. It is not a matter of silver or gold. Why? Because blood is required. Death is required. And that helps us to explain at least some of the rougher edges of this story. Like, yes, this is a gruesome, horrific story. Like, seven men are hanged to die. But then again, what exactly did you expect in a story about atonement for murder? If anything, the, the terrible and uncomfortable parts of this story should remind us once again of how terrible sin is. That the wages of sin is death. That atonement for sin, sin against the holy God, requires death. For each and every one of us, if we are going to atone for our sins against God on our own, if we're going to pay the full penalty for our sins by ourselves, well, that's going to require something even worse than physical death by hanging. It's going to require an eternity in hell. Eternal death. Experiencing the full wrath of God for every sin that we've ever committed. A destiny so awful that it makes even the most horrific forms of human punishment seem like nothing. Gospel picture number one is that of atonement. And that brings us to a second gospel picture powerfully illustrated in this story. And that's a picture of mercy. You say, where do we see mercy in this story? Remember, this is a tale of two Mephibosheths. One is the son of Saul by Rizpah. That Mephibosheth is put to death. The other is the grandson of Saul through Jonathan that Mephibosheth is spared. But why? 
Both Mephibosheths are direct descendants of King Saul. And so at least in the Gibeonites' estimation, both are deserving of death. So why is one Mephibosheth spared when the other is put to death? Why is one grandson spared when five others are put to death? The answer is in verse 7. The king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. It's because of the covenant that David made with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. That is, Mephibosheth is, once again, a beneficiary of mercy shown to him for the sake of another. Friends, that is a powerful picture of the gospel. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, he deserves to be up there. He deserves to be hanged to death alongside the other descendants of Saul, alongside the other Mephibosheth. But he's not because David shows him mercy. David shows him undeserved favor in not giving him what he deserves. In the same way, you and I, as sinners who've sinned against the holy God, we deserve to die. And not just physically, but again, an eternal death in hell. But for those who are in Christ, we will never know that wrath. We will never know that death because God in Christ shows us mercy. God shows us undeserved favor in not giving us what we deserve. Gospel picture number two is mercy. Gospel picture number one, atonement. Gospel picture number two, mercy. That brings us to a third gospel picture from this story that really brings the first two together. And that's a picture of substitution. A gospel picture number three is that of substitution. Here's a question about this story that may have bothered you the first time you went through it. Like, why did the seven sons or seven descendants of Saul, why did they have to die to atone for something that their father had done? Like, were they themselves complicit in this murder of the Gibeonites? I don't think so. It seems like a pretty significant detail to leave out. And plus, if you do the math, uh, Saul's five grandsons, they probably would have been young kids when the killing of the Gibeonites happened. Or maybe what David did here in giving up the seven descendants of Saul, that was completely wrong. Uh, Maybe he just gave in to the demands of a, a sinful pagan nation. But that's not the sense we get from the text God doesn't rebuke David for uh, giving up these seven men. He doesn't bring another curse on the land. No, the text plainly says that God responded to the plea for the land. So then what's going on here? That's where we need to remember that the covenant that was broken here wasn't just an individual covenant between Saul on the one hand and the Gibeonites on the other. Because if that was the case, uh, it seemed quite unjust 
to kill the descendants of Saul for a violation. Now this is a covenant, going back to Joshua chapter 9, between the Israelites as a whole and the Gibeonites. And so when King Saul, as king of the people, when he put the Gibeonites to death, it's not just King Saul who is guilty of breaking the covenant. No, all the people bear the guilt of breaking the covenant. And that's why when David first finds out about why the whole land is under a famine, under a curse, David doesn't just say, well, what's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with us? No, David knows that the people bear the guilt of breaking this covenant, and that's why he, as the current representative of the people, that's why he asks the Gibeonites, how shall I make atonement? What do I have to do to make atonement? David knew that the whole land was under the curse of God in the famine because the whole people bore the guilt and curse of the covenant. But then what happens in this story? Well, essentially, these seven men go and bear the curse of God in the place of all the people. They bear the curse of God that everybody deserves. We see that illustrated in yet another way in this story through something very unique that happens here. Did you notice that something happens in this story that typically never would have been allowed in Israel? The bodies of the seven men are left to hang. Now that's why Rizpah had to stay by the bodies to ward off the scavengers. Now that typically would not have been allowed because of Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. But that's exactly what happens here. And we see at least one possible reason why those bodies were left up there because if a hanged man is cursed by God, well, these guys are supposed to be seen as cursed by God. Like the whole point of their deaths is to bear the curse that's on the people. And then, as indicated by the end of the famine, right, God responded to the plea for the land. God mercifully accepts those seven deaths as atonement for the covenant breaking instead of the whole people being under a curse. Friends, do you see it? How in this most bizarre of stories, we have a striking picture of substitution. These seven men bear the curse of God in the place of, instead of, as substitutes for the people. As a result... The transgression is atoned for. The payment is made. Wrath is appeased. Gospel picture number one, atonement. And so because of what the substitutes did, God then shows mercy to the people by lifting the famine, removing the curse. That's gospel picture number two of mercy. All of that 
is made possible by gospel picture number three, substitution. You see, substitution answers one of the Bible's most pressing questions. How can a holy God show mercy to sinful people if atonement is required for their sins? How is that possible? And the answer is substitution. The answer is that Jesus bears our sins as our substitute. But, and this is true of any picture of the gospel that we find in the Old Testament, any picture of Christ that we see, the reality is so much greater than the picture. That's true of the substitutionary atonement pictures that we see in the Old Testament sacrifices. Animals are slaughtered in the place of sinners so that God might show mercy. But those were only imperfect pictures that that only covered sin until the reality came. The book of Hebrews reminds us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, in the same way, the substitutionary atonement of these seven men, like as striking as a picture as it is, what's even more striking is how much greater the reality of Christ is. Because these seven men, they were surely killed against their will. Uh, The Gibeonites demanded it, and David forced them. But Jesus, Jesus willingly came according to the perfect plan of the Trinity. To save sinners like you and sinners like me. Sinners who, like we said earlier, if we were going to atone for our sins on our own, like if we were going to pay the just price for our sin on our own, we would deserve an eternity in hell. But Jesus, in mercy, he came and died in our place to atone for our sins as our substitute. And unlike those seven men in that picture, seven men who were sinners themselves, who couldn't truly bear the curse of God because, well, they've got sins of their own. They've got the curse of God for their own sins. Unlike those seven men, Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And so he didn't deserve to die in any sense. There was no atonement that had to be made for Jesus' sin because Jesus had no sin. But he went to the cross and he died as our substitute. He dies in our place. He takes upon himself the curse of God that we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's substitutionary atonement. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That's substitutionary atonement. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. That is substitutionary atonement. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, that is substitutionary atonement. 
Friend, if you are not a Christian today, that is your only hope. That Jesus can be your perfect substitute. That if you would repent and believe today, that if you would turn from your sin and look to Christ, that if you would see him as your only hope for atonement, if you would cry out to him as your only means of salvation, then you too can be saved. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have the curse of eternal death lifted. Because Christ has suffered the punishment of sin for his people as a substitute. And no sin shall God ever punish twice. Second Samuel 21. This is a strange, obscure story by any measure. But it's also one that points us so clearly to Christ. And it's pictures of atonement, pictures of mercy, and ultimately, it's picture of substitution. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that these indeed are, are they that testify of your Son. Pray that each of us would, through the eyes of faith, be able to see Christ and his glorious gospel in this narrative, that we might look to him as the only atonement for our sins, our only hope of mercy, because he is our glorious substitute. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.